This session will focus on systems change, an approach to social entrepreneurship which goes beyond organizational scale. Systems change is the recognition that organizations do not exist in a vacuum, and as they grow, they need to do so in a meaningful way, ensuring that the broader context is taken into consideration. Today, I'm joined by Francois Bonici, Director of the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship, as well as Bame Motungwa from the Innovative Finance Initiative at the Bertha Center. So, Bame, you will be in conversation with Cynthia Rayner, researcher and case writer at the Bertha Center for Social Social innovation and entrepreneurship. What can we expect from her? Thanks, Sibs. The conversation around social enterprise planning and systems change is one that's going to look at different scaling models and the best practices of systems change around the world. Mm. Additionally, Cynthia will provide a great overview on systems entrepreneurship and the work that the Bertha Center is doing around the topic. Uh, she'll look at how to create sustainable systemic impact as an organization. And finally, she'll answer the question from sustainability to scale. How do organizations make this transition? Looking forward to it. Let's have a listen to that. Tell me, Cynthia, what do you do for the Bertha Center? Well, Bame, I would consider myself a case writer and a researcher. I work on a project right now that is looking at systems change and social entrepreneurship. Basically, we are doing case research, which means we look at organizations that are operating on the ground and we learn from the work that they are doing. We've had a fantastic opportunity through the Schwab Foundation to look at six different social entrepreneurs who are working across the globe. These are large social enterprises that have been around for a long time, and they have moved beyond looking at just delivering services and products to their beneficiaries and starting to think about how can they influence systems as a whole. So we've had this opportunity through the Schwab Foundation to actually look closely at these six organizations and learn from what they are doing. Before we get into the six organizations, I'm just curious and would love to know from you, what does social entrepreneurship mean to you? It's quite a tricky term, mm -hmm. and I think it does create a lot of ambiguity in people's minds. Um, people sometimes think that social enterprise is restricted to those organizations and companies that are delivering for-profit models. So they're bringing in revenue, and they're using that revenue to deliver services. Yeah. They're incurring costs, and ultimately they want to create a profit, and that's their strategy for sustainability. However, I think that um, what we have seen is that social enterprise can actually include a lot more organizations. They can include nonprofit organizations that are using business principles to further their um, operations, yeah. and in some cases using donor funding, in many cases using donor funding, to deliver um, services and products to low-income people or to people who um, would not otherwise receive products and services. So in that case, I think that social enterprise has been expanded. I think yeah. that we're moving beyond just looking at it as a for-profit model. How did you come to do this? How did you enter the industry? I always like to hear people's stories. So just briefly, do you want to share that with us? Sure. I think like many people, I've come to this with a very roundabout um, career path. Um, I started working in the for-profit sector. I was a management consultant. Um, you can hear from my accent, I'm American. So yeah. I was working in the U.S. as a management consultant. I then went to work um, in industry for a few years. And over a period of time, realized that saving dollars and cents for large corporations was, was not the most interesting of activities. 
um, and thought that maybe my skills could be used elsewhere. Also at that time, I traveled to South Africa, and I was very um, interested and intrigued by this country, particularly at that stage. It was 2003, so it was a really interesting um, point in history for the for South Africa. And I wanted to come back here and 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 see if I could contribute in some way. Through a fellowship with the LGT Venture Philanthropy Foundation, I was able to come to work in South Africa for an organization called Mothers to Mothers. This fellowship places mid-career professionals in nonprofit organizations and for-profit organizations that are working in the social enterprise space. Mm. And so I was able to work for a year through uh, funding to um, help Mothers to Mothers in their strategic planning as well as in their financial planning. I came to love the work that Mothers to Mothers does. They work with HIV-positive moms, mentoring them through the tactics to prevent transmission of HIV to babies. And they were working at that time in 10 uh, sub-Saharan African countries. Um, They were expanding rapidly. Um, They had a really interesting business model, I'll call it. And even though it was a nonprofit organization, I felt that they were really using business principles to expand their operations. So I really wanted to do more with them, and so I continued to stay on and work for them for two years. After that time, and after two years of maternity leave and being a mom, I came back and saw that the Bertha Center was doing excellent work in research in this area, and I wanted to apply the things that I had learned in the research area. I'd love to touch on that Mothers to Mothers story. In doing your research, how much of your experience there has come to frame the research that you do? And just what exactly is this concept of systems change? And I think it would be nice if we could look at it through the lens of Mothers to Mothers. For me, um, this idea of systems change, I didn't even know that the concept existed until about a year ago. When I was working at Mothers to Mothers, I knew that we were trying to expand the operations to reach more women and prevent transmission of HIV to babies. But I didn't realize that what we were doing at the time could be called systems change. When I started at Mothers to Mothers, they were solely operating through clinics, but doing all of the operations themselves. And they were working in 10 countries and reaching quite a number of women in the millions. But they weren't, at that time, able to expand to the really far reaches of rural areas um, and working through government. We had the opportunity through funding with USAID to look at how we could expand Mothers to Mothers across Kenya in all um, of the clinics operating in Kenya uh, working with pregnant women. And the challenge of thinking about how we could expand services to all women in Kenya really uh, taxed our our thinking. Um, It made us think beyond just working in urban areas to how Mm -hmm. we could expand to rural areas. At the time, we realized that we weren't going to be able to do this on our own. We couldn't just um, expand services through our own operations. We needed to work through others, um, specifically through implementing partners and through government. And realizing or thinking about how to do this through training, through government systems, through government financial systems, through government planning systems, all of those sorts of things, really that's one of the ways that we're talking about systems change. How do you take your operations beyond what you can deliver on your own and do it through other entities? And really, if you want to go to scale, often in the social sector, you have to go through government. And it's not something that we can ignore. So how do you do that in a way that strengthens government, strengthens their capacity to to deliver, but still delivers quality services to the people who need them? What I'm hearing, Cynthia, is that systems change is sort of a, a new way of thinking and it's encouraging social enterprises to look forward, to look 
beyond sort of their immediate environment and the immediate beneficiaries that they're working with and really think about, well, when they are going to scale their business model or scale the work that they do, how can they go about this in involving other people to ensure that they get the furthest reach possible, yes? Yes, and I would actually say that um, systems change, in fact, is not new at all. And I, I think that's what, that's what is interesting to me is that um, social enterprises are just starting to cotton on to this idea of systems change. But activists, lobbyists, policymakers have been thinking along this angle for a very long time. And I think um, for social enterprises, it's getting to the point where you realize I can reach um, maybe a million beneficiaries, sometimes even 10 million beneficiaries. But how do I reach the scale of the problem when it's in the hundreds of millions, even mm. billions of people? Mm. And realizing that you can't just deliver a service on your own. You can't just influence um, maybe a set of operational on the ground actors. You have to influence policy as a whole. So actually, rather than it being new, it's it's kind of old strategies that are now being repurposed by, by social entrepreneurs. Um, I think teaching people who have been um, in the realm of business and making them think beyond just the delivery of products and services to this expansion of policy, working through government, that sort of thing, is a stretch. Because in many ways, it taxes the, this need to control or this need to um, always have a handle on, on exactly what is happening at every level. Um, so I think it's new for social entrepreneurs to think in this way. It's easy for us to sit here and talk about this, but as you would know, working with social entrepreneurs, most of them are working in very difficult areas and dealing with very difficult societal problems. It was the case like Mothers to Mothers, you mentioned expansion into Kenya, for instance. I mean, aren't there logistical issues to that? And even when working with governments, bringing in new partners, is this an easy thing to really get going? Is systems change something that you can say practically, step one, let's do this? Or is it a lot more complex than that? I think it's a lot more complex. And yeah. I think that those who are attempting to do so are are finding that there are challenges along the way, certainly. I think, you know, looking at systems change at, at a few different levels, I think that's one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. um, you've got kind of broader advocacy, which is raising awareness for an issue and making sure that those who have power and influence are able to um, make changes at a broad level, legal level, policy level, so that things can happen on the ground, making funding available and then ensuring that there are resources available to make things happen. And then secondly, working through um, others like government, like industry, um, for-profit companies, um, um, I think those are two levels that you can look at. Yeah. And then there's kind of this kind of grassroots level, or even you could say the most influential level, which is changing values and mindsets. So how do you actually ensure that people take on change and, and make change happen in their own communities? That's the broadest level of change that you can make happen. Let's hear about your research. What are the key things that are coming out out of that research and what areas are you focusing on? We're looking at six different organizations, and these organizations are working across the globe. Most of them are working in multiple countries, uh, many of them working in multiple regions. And the themes that are coming out of this are three themes that I'll talk about. Um, the first is around power and influence. So how do organizations um, become influencers of the system overall? How do they influence people in power? So government, um, funders, um, and how do they actually wield that influence um, to further their missions and goals? Uh, the second theme would be around working through others. So this is what we've talked about with Mothers to Mothers. Um, but how do you actually 
take other organizations, implementing partners, government partners, and actually teach them how to do your model or go beyond that and actually influence them with your values so that those values become apparent in the services that are being delivered. Mm. And then finally, and this one is one of the the hardest, I think, to grasp, is um, what I call leading to let go. So how do organizations actually take on the fact that when they influence the system and then ultimately shift the system, their organizations may cease to be important mm. and their services may no longer be necessary. And in fact, that is their their ultimate goal. And so we're looking at how some of these organizations have created models that allow them to shift power into the hands of those who are going to take it forward rather than creating sustainability within their own organizations. We can look at practical examples. Like I said, we're working with six different organizations to understand their histories and their stories and how they're currently growing their organizations. That first theme around power and influence, one of the organizations that we're looking at is called Child and Youth Finance International. They're an organization that's based in Amsterdam, but they're working globally to um, basically integrate social and financial education into education systems around the globe as well as influence regulatory authorities in the finance sector to ensure that children can open savings accounts, so financial inclusion for children. So they really have two simultaneous missions. Mm -hmm. But instead of actually going out and delivering education on the ground themselves, they realized that they actually needed to influence education systems and influence financial regulatory systems. Okay. Not an easy task. No, not at all. So rather than hire a lot of people and go out and, and, and teach kids, yeah. um, instead they built a network of organizations and um, that are operating on the ground as well as brought together a network of central banks and banking authorities, ministers of finance, ministers of education, and have, over the course of several years, have led them along this path of helping them to understand why this, these two tasks of financial and social education as well as financial inclusion for kids were important to integrate into their policy um, in their countries. So now they work at the government level, mm -hmm. sometimes at the national level, sometimes at the regional level, to ensure that these two goals are being met in the policy agendas in the countries. So that's an example of how organizations can wield power and influence in, in furthering their missions. I think that advocacy is vital and Again, to really make a significant change, you have to go to, to the top, right? You have to go to governments. You have to help them change their mindsets and see how a previous system isn't working, for instance. But it's interesting to me that an organization like that, um, you know, it's the, the easy route to go is to go to the ground, to bring the teachers to the, to, to the children, to bring the financial literacy through education. And looking at the power and influence theme, how do they practically do this? So do they lobby a government minister? Do they go to an MP? I'm just thinking if I'm a leader of an organization like this, what would be a step that I could take in this power and influence theme? Well, I think an interesting thing about this organization and what we're studying in our research is how they moved from being a service delivery organization first yeah. um, to now being this advocacy organization. Yeah. They started as an organization called Aflatoon, which still exists today, which delivers a really solid curriculum for social and financial education. So they really learned through building the program at the grassroots level first, yeah. through implementing partners and through just testing their, their theories on the ground. But then as they realized that actually it was the system itself that needed to change, that was when they started moving into an advocacy role. And that was when they developed a new entity called Child and Youth Finance to further their advocacy mission. Yeah. 
interestingly, they they take a very a soft approach or a fun approach to okay. to educating policymakers and and authorities. They have something called Global Money Week, which they celebrate every year, which takes over 100 countries, people within those countries, to develop activities for kids during over the course of a week that engage kids with money. So sometimes it could be a stock exchange, uh, having inviting kids to come and ring the, the bell uh, to open the stock exchange. Yeah. In other cases, it's games, um, invitations to the central bank so that kids can take tours. But basically the idea is to showcase to policymakers, but also kids, how mm. money can be a fun way of of learning. So that's the kind of soft entry point into the, the policymakers' mind. But then beyond that, they actually work then with the committees that are set up to do Global Money Week to actually start to influence policy within the country. So they identify what are the barriers within each country to kids opening bank accounts or to the curriculum, including social and financial education, and what particular sectors of government need to be influenced in order to assume and overcome some of these barriers. So then it becomes a very national approach, and they have to work very closely with governments to identify what are the barriers and how can we overcome them in in each country. That's great. I love that fun approach and, <laughs> and bringing the, the kids to the stock exchange. I love that. Okay, let's move on to, to the other themes, working through others and leading to let go. Do you have some examples for those? Yes, I think in, in working through others, the best example I have is Mothers to Mothers, mm-hmm. simply from having worked with them and understanding the, the specific steps that we had gone through to develop a plan for Kenya. But then also the other organization that we are researching now is Village Reach. They are working in sub-Saharan Africa to improve systems for immunization delivery. And what they discovered was that immunization systems are basically built to reach about 80% of your population. And so you basically have this kind of catch-all approach. And since vaccines are relatively cheap, you can kind of cast a wide net and try and get as many kids vaccinated in a specific program as possible. But when it comes to reaching kids in rural areas, that last 20%, that's when it, it becomes more difficult. And what they decided was that they couldn't develop a parallel system. They didn't want to develop a parallel system. Rather, they wanted to strengthen the ability of um, more resource-constrained countries to de- to deliver vaccination programs to that um, that last mile um, themselves. So they developed a um, supply chain method, which includes a cold chain supply chain so that vaccines can get to the rural areas. So uh, what is that cold chain, <laughs> cold supply chain? Basically, mean, vac- <laughs> vaccines have to be um, cold when they reach the, uh, ah. the point of delivery. <laughs> okay. So one of the hindrances is actually being able to make sure that they can be delivered in refrigerated trucks to the, to ah. the point of delivery. So they had to actually develop at each stage of the way what the information systems were going to be, what the transport systems were going to be, and then train people on the ground in rural clinics to be able to deliver vaccines at the last mile. So this required and and continues to require an enormous amount of cooperation Mm. with health systems. And in many cases, you can't just deliver it through the existing health system. You have to strengthen the system before you can actually put the system in place. So it it has required a lot of training of government employees, in some cases um, putting new um, roles in place, so uh, transport and logistics people on the ground so that they're able to ensure that the vaccines do make it where they need to go. Um, But they've had an enormous success. 
I don't have the statistics in front of me, but from, but from what I remember, they were able to increase vaccine delivery uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. Oh. Um, so really, they were able to reach into the um, 90, 95 percent level yeah. of vaccine coverage. And they've received funding from um, the Gates Foundation in order to expand this in multiple countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Should we go to leading to let go? Yes, my favorite. <laughs> One of the things that came out of our initial research, just the literature review, was that some of the things that we think of as social entrepreneurs or when looking at social enterprises as being important things are around creating sustainability of organizations. We talk about sustainability so much, and usually we're talking about the organization itself. How can an organization keep uh, it funded, it's self-funded, how can it build up and strengthen its HR systems, its financial systems, its information systems, its reporting systems. But in the case of systems change, one of the tricky bits that we've learned is that if you're trying to influence a system, sometimes spending a lot of time and money on making your own organization sustainable can actually be the wrong, the wrong way to go about it, because ultimately you're trying to put yourself out of business. And that has some nuances to it. So I'll talk about an organization called Nidan, which I just got back from spending a week with them in India. They work throughout India, um, in several states of India, building what they call people's institutions. Okay. So in this case, they're trying to formalize and to empower informal workers in the country. Um, something like 90% of workers in India are informal workers. Um, so these workers don't have protection from authorities. Um, in many cases, they don't have any sort of identification, so they can't receive credit, open bank accounts, ensure the, the normal things that you and I would think to grow their businesses or to grow their um, their their work. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Nidan, they have tried to bring workers together so that they can collectively advocate for their rights. And what's interesting about Nidan is that although they themselves are a strong organization, I would say that they've put most of their efforts and most of their resources into building other organizations. In some cases, this can be unions. They've created an, a national union for street vendors across the country hundreds of thousands of informal workers that now have identification cards, um, some form of uh, leverage to advocate for social security, insurance against police harassment, and have essentially been able to come together to, um, to fight for their rights. So in this case, Nidan didn't put the effort into building their own organization. Yeah. They put all of their effort into building another organization, which now exists completely sustainably on its own. Yeah. Uh, Nidan does, does give it support in that it helps with some of its organizing activities. Um, but I was there, and I can say that I met with these uh, organizational members, and they are fully operating on, on their own. Yeah. Um, they've also uh, developed for-profit companies that have gone on to be to become sustainable entities in and of their own right, um, as well as cooperatives and nonprofit organizations. So in total, I think they've created over 21 separate organizations, mobilizing something like 700,000 people across India. And although they do continue to be an organization that is sustainable in their own right, they really have put most of their resources into making other organizations sustainable. And this is what I call leading to let go. Yeah. I think they really do instill values into the organizations that then get perpetuated through the operations of these other organizations. Um, but they would very much say that they are empowering other organizations rather than building their own organization. 
Earlier when you mentioned leading to let go, I thought, wow, this is quite controversial. Um, <laughs> we're asking uh, organizations to essentially run themselves out of business. So it's interesting to hear that need an example. In terms of Needham's own sustainability, um, do you see an end to there being a need for an organization like that? Or do you think that there will always be sort of an area for them to improve empowerment for other organizations? I think it would be, um, and it was an, an interesting question that I asked Arbin Singh, who, who leads Nidan, and he said for him, when he was developing the concept of Nidan, he was very aware that nonprofit organizations can often come and go, that based on the whims of funders and trends in funding, he might see Nidan someday not be able to receive funding, and he wanted to make sure that whatever change he was implementing would last beyond uh, Nidan itself. That being said, I think in empowering other organizations to grow and become sustainable, Nidan has itself become more sustainable in and of its own right. I think they would see themselves as more of an incubator. The organization itself kind of spins off these entities, and then they themselves take on new projects as they're, as they're able to. But ultimately, Arben told me, if Nidan did have to close its doors tomorrow, it's its impact would still sustain, and that was the important thing for him. I think he would like to see Nadan continue. I think yeah. that they are certainly making efforts to ensure that Nadan can continue to incubate other organizations and spend them off, but ultimately he doesn't have the, the I guess, the hubris to think that, that Nadan would will last forever and that um, he wants to make sure that other organizations can last in perpetuity beyond Nadan itself. You're collating all this research. What do you plan to do with it? Where are you taking all of this amazing information? So we're part of actually a much bigger, I think, movement of, of looking at these um, sorts of organizations and how they operate. Um, we're certainly not the only ones looking at systems change. Mm. I think what we would like to do is be able to contribute to that body of work and use the information to work with social entrepreneurs to help them be able to become systems entrepreneurs if they think that that's the best way to further their mission. Um, ultimately, I think that what we're finding is that there are lessons that can be imparted from the organizations that we've studied to other organizations and that possibly they could create um, some sort of a framework or a model for systems entrepreneurship that we could help others learn. But ultimately, I think that what, what we've learned about systems change is that it's very contextual. It's very much based on the environment within which you're operating. And you have to have a deep knowledge of a system in order to ensure that the change that you are trying to impart is going to be sustainable and shift shift the system. I would expect that we have transferable lessons that we can impart, but ultimately it's up to social entrepreneurs to take these lessons and use them in their specific systems to further their missions. The Bertha Center runs some courses around social entrepreneurship. Um, is there anything coming up on systems change that people can look forward to? Yes, we are hosting a course called Leading Social Entrepreneurship. It's a week-long course which is focused on these very topics. It's looking at how social entrepreneurs can become systems entrepreneurs. The course is designed to have social entrepreneurs look at their own organizations to think through the system within which they're operating and be able to apply some of these lessons. And we uh, sincerely hope that social entrepreneurs who attend the course will be able to walk away with a set of practical strategies that they can apply to their businesses going forward.
To all the social entrepreneurs listening out there, you definitely should check out the Bertha Center's course on social entrepreneurship. If you want to take some of these ideas forward, that would be a great way to think about what are the practical tools to do this. And I think that we are at a time in South Africa where we need that change. We need to start thinking about how to advance social issues beyond just the grants, beyond just solving a minute problem in one specific area. Let's all work together. Let's use our partnerships. Let's talk to governments. Let's take our kids to the stock exchange. And let's just inspire change. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for joining me today. Thank you, Bame. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Cynthia Rayner for giving up her time to share her insights. So, Bame, what can we distill from that conversation? The top takeaways on systems change are that organizations are really starting to consider how to influence systems as a whole. Partnerships are vital to achieving this, and organizations can then look to working with others as a tool to achieve systems change. In doing so, they can take operations beyond their capacity and reach a much wider base in terms of their beneficiaries. This is the final episode in the Social Enterprise 101 series. Francois, what would you say are the key things you hope the listeners have taken away from the series? Thanks, Sibs. I think we've hoped to introduce uh, an audience who has heard the word and heard the term Mm -hmm. and try to understand what does it really mean? Who are social entrepreneurs? Can I be one? Can my organization evolve into thinking and acting like a social enterprise? So we want to see that from the perspective of nonprofit organizations. I think we've discussed a little bit of that, looking the transition away from donor funding, how to become more independent, mm-hmm. generate their own revenue, develop their business models, but also how businesses can actually seek to increase their social impact. Uh, and so we've heard some interesting real-life examples from organizations that we've had on this series, uh, Silulu Luto Technologies, Libramat, Operation Smile, Ikamva Youth, and it's been fantastic to hear of these real examples rather than just talking about these concepts and hearing what South African social entrepreneurs are doing. Uh, I think those probably will have been some of the most uh, uh, useful for, for the, this podcast audience. Um, The Bertha Center itself has also been looking to develop entrepreneurship in South Africa, and this podcast series is one way to get the conversation started, uh, to hear from social entrepreneurs who we don't always see through our traditional media, Mm -hmm. and also to build a stronger ecosystem that people are talking about this, thinking about this, that we want a more inclusive and responsible economy. We need more sustainable nonprofit organizations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so part of this journey is about starting this conversation and getting people thinking. Yeah, that's the key thing, I guess, uh, empowerment and sustainability. So those of you who want to take the conversation further and learn more on the subject, what are some of the opportunities that they can look into? Well, hopefully they've uh, used this podcast as an introduction. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are lots of primers and introductions out there. We've recently launched a a MOOC, a massive online open course, which is a free course. (laughs) uh, And they can get that on Coursera. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coursera is one of the big online free educational platforms. Uh, If you go to www.coursera.org forward slash learn forward slash social innovation, you'll get one of the Bertha Center's free new courses on social innovation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also offer a number of uh, short courses and executive education courses through the Graduate School of Business. And then you can come and do a degree if you're ready for that, a a master's in inclusive innovation or an MBA with a focus on social innovation at the business school. But we're not the only ones offering these things. So Mm -hmm. we also hold open events, the conferences, uh, some of the other universities are starting to offer courses, and there's lots of online resources. 
And there's also lots of places to go and get real experiences. So what we've actually challenged people to do in the MOOC, for example, is to realize that you can start social innovation from wherever you are. Mm. It's not only for these uh, great examples and heroes that we talk about and we see as role models, but also, you know, whether you're within a company or within an organization or within a community or whether you're sitting at home, there's a way to start being a social innovator. Uh, and so we really feel this is a, a space for everyone. Mm-hmm. But we want to also point out and demonstrate that they're, they're a real organization starting in this space. So I think there are lots of places for people to engage. Uh, certainly if they come to the Bertha Center and onto the Bertha Center website, there's plenty of resources and places to direct you to things that might be of interest. So your doors are always open? They are, both digitally and, <laughs> uh, and virtually and, and in person. I'm coming for tea. <laughs> Bame, anything you'd like to add? Francis covered it quite nicely. We also have an event for social entrepreneurs called the Pathways to Funding Doofrance. The Doofrance is a two-day masterclass on how to raise funding, and we host this annually in September. We've run the Doofrance um, in Cape Town once before. We're taking it national to Durban, Johannesburg, and Cape Town once again. And Pathways to Funding is something that we hope to take across the continent. The Doofrance is a series of interactive workshops, one-on-one sessions, and TED-style talks that are focused on this topic of access to finance. Research shows that a lot of entrepreneurs say that the main challenge that they face is this raising of funding. So we hope that through the difference and through connecting them to investors, to intermediaries and experts on the subject, that we can build a strong ecosystem around social entrepreneurship and access to finance. I like that word, difference, not conference. Very appealing. Be sure to download all the episodes in the series Social Enterprise 101, brought to you by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship and Prime Media Broadcasting. From me, Sibongi Lemafu, Franza Bonici, and Bamemo Dungwa, thank you so much for listening. And remember to tweet us at Bertha Center.